Today is Wednesday, February the 1st, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. PRN.live, streaming on the internet. Podcasts of the program is available on PRN.live, on the internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Cyber criminals made off with the social security numbers and other personal information of about 35,000 PayPal customers after a December credential stuffing attack. According to a disclosure statement filed with the state of Maine, the attack occurred between December 6th and December 8th of last year and was discovered on December 20th. In addition to social security numbers, usernames, addresses, dates of birth, and individual tax identification numbers also may have been compromised. There's no indication that any financial information was stolen or that customer accounts were misused, PayPal said. The company's payment systems were not, though, affected. In a statement released by PayPal, they said it has contacted affected customers and offered guidance on how to further protect their personal information. The company also reset the passwords of all of the affected accounts and is requiring their users to set new ones the next time they log in. PayPal is also providing those affected with identity theft monitoring services through Equifax for the next two years. In a credential stuffing attack, cyber criminals bombard online accounts with combinations of usernames and passwords often stolen in previous data breaches in an attempt to access as many accounts as possible. That's a big reason why cybersecurity experts say consumers should always enable two-factor authentication whenever possible. The security measure requires a second form of authentication, like a fingerprint or code sent to a user's phone, in addition to a password protecting a user in the event their password is compromised. In addition... People should always use long, unique, and random passwords for each of their online accounts. Those will be less likely to show up on the list of passwords used to crack accounts in credential stuffing attacks. Whether it was part of the PayPal cyber attack or another security breach, there are steps you can take to protect yourself after someone steals your social security number. In a perfect world, Your personal information, like your social security number, is confidential and secure. But accidents happen and data breaches can occur at any time, leaving your identity information compromised and at risk of fraud and theft. In December, the social security numbers of over 35,000 PayPal users were stolen in a cyber attack, leaving critical personal information in the hands of cyber hackers and thieves. These sorts of hacks happen frequently, and in the aftermath, identity theft 
can have a long-lasting impact on a person's credit score. But just because it's a constant threat doesn't mean you can't take steps to protect yourself. And here's how to keep your personal information safe and what to do if your social security number has been stolen. How does your personal information get stolen? Well, theft happens everywhere, all the time. People will steal wallets and bags and go through mail in search of personal bank or credit card information. The Social Security Administration warns that people rummaging through trash outside of homes or businesses in search of critical information is another way identity theft takes place, along with people buying personal information from insider sources. There's also the risk of receiving phone calls, texts, or emails from seemingly official sources who are actually fraudsters looking to trick you into revealing information. Cyber attacks happen when hackers take to online accounts with combinations of usernames and passwords that are often stolen in previous data breaches and used to break into many accounts as they can. That strategy is reason enough to diversify your password and implement two-factor authentication whenever possible. If you think that you've been a victim of a social security theft, what should you do? First, if you think your social security number has been stolen, know that the administration itself can't do much if someone uses your stolen information to, for example, open up a line of credit or get a job. Head to the FTC or the Federal Trade Commission's identitytheft.gov. I'll repeat that website again. identitytheft.gov and fill out a form to receive a personal recovery plan. This plan walks you through all you need to know about protecting yourself from fraud and recovering your identity. You can also call 877-438-4337. I'll repeat that again. The FTC number you can call is 877-438-4337. Contact the Internal Revenue Service, that's the IRS, if your social security number has been stolen to prevent the thief from using your number to file a tax return and receive your tax refund or to prevent them from using your number for a job. If a thief uses your social security number to get a job, old taxes may show up on your record. Visit the IRS Identity Theft Central to dispute these claims. Get help and clear up any issues you have. File an online complaint with the Internet Crime Complaint Center, which monitors cybercrime complaints to combat Internet crime. It's also advisable to check your credit report every so often to quash any fishy behavior as it happens. Visit www.annualcreditreport.com that's www.annualcreditreport.com to receive a free credit report. Contact the Social Security Administration if you think your Social Security number has been compromised and the administration can help review your statement. Do you need a new Social Security number? If you've done all the steps that the Social Security Administration recommends and your Social Security number is no longer being used by someone other than yourself, then you don't need to apply for a new social security number. If you've taken all the necessary steps and still find that your number is being used, 
you can apply for a new one. But the administration doesn't make it easy to get a new Social Security number. You need proof that your number continues to be used by someone other than yourself. The administration said if you lost your card or think someone stole your number, but have no evidence of someone else using it, you won't be able to receive a new one. What can you do in the future to help prevent identity theft? Sometimes, like with PayPal breach, there's little you can do to keep your information safe. But there are steps you can take to limit your risk. Don't carry around your social security card in your wallet. Instead, store it in a safe place in your home. Try to memorize your social security number so you don't have to take your card out every time you're filling out a document that requires it. If you have to provide your number over the phone, make sure you're far away from other people who could possibly hear it. Employers and landlords often request documents to be sent electronically through email. If you have to provide your social security number or other personal documents by email, try encrypting the document with a password or providing your social security number separately in a phone call. Your employer will need your social security number to run a background check, but you should be skeptical of any job posting that requires you to enter personal information at the outset of an application. Unless you are starting a new position and have an offer in hand, you should not provide your social security number to a recruiter. Finally, always check your bank statements and credit statements regularly to address any issues as soon as they pop up. Enable two-factor authentication on your passwords to protect your private information on websites and apps. And verify the source of your notices, whether they're phone calls or emails. The Social Security Administration said, in general, it will only call you if you requested a call. If you believe you receive a scam call or email, don't give the person any personal information. I will post a transcript of what do you do if someone stole your social security number on our website, pcradioshow.org. Some of the world's biggest tech companies have collectively laid off more than 150,000 workers in recent months. The businesses involved have put forward a variety of reasons for why this was necessary, which mostly comes down to a need to reduce costs as economic growth slows down around the world. The reasons for big tech layoffs at Google, Microsoft, Meta, and Amazon. It isn't likely to be because the companies involved need money. Microsoft, which is reported to have laid off around 10,000 employees, practically simultaneously announced that it plans to invest $10 billion in OpenAI, the creators of the application ChatGBT. It seems likely that there is a business reason at the heart of the decision to invest a sum that it would equate to $1 million per laid-off employee in an AI company. Likewise, Google, parent company Alphabet, announced plans to reduce its global headcount by 12,000 a cut of around 6%. CEO Sundar Pichai has previously described AI as the most transformational technology of all time and in making the layoff stated that the strategy would be to direct their talent and capital 
to their highest priorities. It is also widely thought that Google is working on its own AI-powered answer to ChatGPT that will be announced soon. Together, four of the biggest tech companies, Meta, Alphabet, Amazon, and Microsoft, have cut 50,000 jobs. Meanwhile, Twitter's incoming boss, Elon Musk, is said to have fired half of the company's employees when he took over at the end of last year. So what is the reason for these mass cuts that have left tens of thousands, 80% of them in the United States, out of work? Data experts at the company 365 Data Science did an analysis of the figures. Some of the findings were perhaps not that surprising. It's known that tech companies, buoyed by the record revenues, undertook a hiring spree during the COVID-19 pandemic. Salaries hit record levels as competition raged for the top talent, and the media was full of stories of lavish perks. So it's not a shock to find that the median time a recently laid-off employee has been in their role is roughly two years. This could suggest that in some ways, these cuts represent a winding back of hiring policies put in place since the pandemic. More surprisingly, though, is the fact that the median level of experience held by those who were let go is 11.5 years. So it's not necessarily true that these are all junior workers with little experience who could be quickly replaced or possibly even have their roles automated. One possible reason for this statistic could be that longer-serving employees tend to receive higher salaries and cutting them could help businesses meet their financial targets. However, it is interesting to note that the roles and job functions most affected were within human resources, which accounted for 28% of all layoffs. There are two possible reasons for this. First, it follows that if companies are laying off staff, they will also be cutting back on recruitment, and less recruitment means less need for an HR staff. A second, though, perhaps just as a relevant reason, is that HR is an area where some functions are being replaced by automation. Platforms already exist that aim to automate routine tasks related to interviewing and onboarding new hires, such as checking references, verifying identities, and carrying out health and safety assessments. In recent years, it's even been reported that companies such as Amazon have used AI to identify low-performing staff and then fire them. We also get some insights into how the roles that were affected differed between each company. While HR and talent sourcing was most affected at Microsoft and Meta, Google and Twitter, it was software engineers who took the brunt of the cuts. The data collected by the company 365 Data Science also shows that a narrow majority of the staff who were let go, which is 56%, were females. This is worrisome, given that the tech industry had spent much of the last decade attempting to address the gender imbalance already present within the field, particularly within technical and engineering roles. It doesn't exactly send out a great message to potential new female hires that, as well as a pay gap and a lower likelihood of progressing into senior roles, they will have to be content with a greater chance of being let go. Finally, one more worrying statistic that jumped out from the report was the fact that only 10% of those laid off have thus far listed a new job in their LinkedIn profiles. 
Of course, it's too early to tell whether this is likely to transition into long-term unemployment as many may simply be enjoying a break before jumping into job hunting, or indeed may simply not have bothered to update their profiles yet. But monitoring how this statistics develop over coming months should give some interesting insights into whether or not it is still easy for skilled tech workers to move between jobs. It's perfectly possible that a substantial number may choose to head into self-employment or the freelance gig economy. So, is it the case that the tech giant simply expanded too far, too quickly, or is it that innovation in AI and automation have created a situation where the fastest way to save money is to replace people with machines? In truth, it's likely to be little of both. None of the companies have specified automation as a driving force behind the moves, but given the job roles affected and reading between the lines, it's tempting to draw the conclusion that it is a contributing factor. Tech layoffs are setting off a deep, desperate scramble for foreign workers to find new jobs in 60 days before being forced to leave the United States. A laid-off foreign worker needs to act fast to land a new job within 60 days as one's visa would become invalid and one would have to leave the country. Rampant job cuts across the tech industry in recent months have sent foreign workers into frantic hunts for new employments. Since late 2022, Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook parent Meta have all slashed thousands of jobs in a bid to cut costs. In the first few weeks of 2023, that's January, just the past 30 days alone, at least 174 tech companies have laid off close to 60,000 jobs. Among the casualties of foreign workers on on H-1B visas, which allowed them to work for U.S.-based employers for three years at first with an option for an extension. If they lose their jobs and want to stay in the United States legally, they have to scramble to find new ones. The search for a new job comes with a huge amount of stress and often fear. The magnitude of the layoffs highlights the consequences for H-1B workers. Not only are tech companies laying off in unprecedented numbers, but they are also implementing hiring freezes, and thus, there are likely few alternative jobs for immigrant workers. U.S. employers typically sponsor H-1B visas to highly skilled professional professionals and computer-related occupations account for as much as 70% of all H-1Bs approved, according to national data. Some foreign workers didn't see the layoffs coming. One day, when they couldn't log into a company's system or access their email and other accounts, many knew what was to come. The length of the complicated visa process reduces the amount of time one actually has to find a new role. It's not effectively 60 days for anybody. It takes the U.S. citizenship and immigration services some time to process any new visa request. Green card holders aren't dependent on their jobs to retain U.S. residency. It's a historic crash for memory chips. This time was supposed to be different. The memory chip sector, famous for its boom and bust cycles, has changed its ways. A combination of 
more disciplined management and new markets for its products, including 5G technology and cloud services, would ensure that companies delivered more predictable earnings. And yet, less than a year after memory companies made such pronouncements, the $160 billion industry is suffering one of its worst routes ever. There's a glut of chips sitting in warehouses. Customers are cutting orders, and product prices have plunged. The chip industry thought that suppliers were going to have better control. This downturn has proved everybody was wrong. The unprecedented crisis isn't just wiping out cash at industry leaders, SK Hynix and Micron Technology, but also destabilizing their suppliers, denting Asian economies that rely on exports, and forcing the few remaining memory players to form alliances or even consider mergers. It's been a swift descent from the industry's pandemic sales surge, which was fueled by shoppers outfitting home offices and snapping up computers, tablets, and smartphones. Now, consumers and businesses are holding off on big purchases as they cope with inflation and rising interest rates. Makers of these devices, the main buyers of memory chips, are suddenly stuck with stockpiles of components and have no need for more. Already, Samsung Electronics and its rivals are losing money on every chip they produce. Their collective operating losses are projected to hit a record $5 billion this year. Inventories, a critical indicator of demand for memory chips, have more than tripled to record levels, reaching three to four months' worth of supply. Samsung looks to be the only one that will escape relatively unscathed thanks to its heft and diversified business. But even the South Korean's giant semiconductor division is headed towards losses. The industry is suffering from a unique combination of circumstances. A pandemic hangover, the war in Ukraine, historic inflation and supply chain disruptions that have made the slump much worse than a regular cyclical downturn. Micron, the last remaining U.S. memory chip maker, has responded aggressively to plummeting demand. The company said last month that it will cut its budget for new plants and equipment in addition to reducing output. The rate at which the industry writes itself will depend on how quickly the company's counterparts make similar moves. Over in South Korea, Hynix has also slashed investments and scaled back output. The company's inventory glut is partly the result of its acquisition of Intel's flash memory business, a deal struck before the industry's decline. All eyes are now on memory chip king Samsung, which has thus far said little about the industry's near-term prospects. The Korean tech giant has typically continued to spend during downturns, hoping to exit them with superior production and higher profitability when demand picks up. This time around, the market has been betting the company will tighten its chip supply, lifting its stock price in recent weeks. Chip manufacturing equipment maker Lam Research said last week that it is seeing an unprecedented reduction in orders as memory customers cut and postpone spending. Executives at the company, which count Samsung, SK Hynix, and Micron as its top customers, declined to predict when such actions might help the memory market rebound. 
It's always been difficult for memory makers to handle spikes and troughs in demand. Bringing new factories online takes years and billions of dollars, so it's hard to get the timing right. The risks have prompted companies in the industry to get more conservative, and they're more focused on profitability than trying to grow quickly and gain market share. That's especially true for so-called DRAM chips, where the three dominant suppliers, Samsung, Hynix, and Micron, are reducing supply. The other major part of the memory market, NAND chips, is more fragmented and set to go through a more severe battle as the many contenders fight for survival. The NAND market is experiencing fierce competition and recovery will follow one quarter after the DRAM market recovery. If the situation gets longer, eventually, we're going to see consolidation in the NAND market. The memory industry had mergers during previous downturns, and this one may be no exception. NAND makers, Western Digital, and Keoxia Holdings are progressing in their deal talks, and people familiar with the matter said this month. Still, the companies already manufacture jointly and thus a merger won't necessarily lead to reduced output. The longer-term question is when customers' demand will bounce back. China's recent exit from COVID-related restrictions could be one catalyst to help the industry, as gadget makers will be able to bring manufacturing plants back to normal rhythm. The view is that memory will recover in the second half. SanDisk external drives and micro SD cards are up to 65% off. Make sure you have extra storage on hand thanks to these deals. There's no such thing as having too much storage on hand. You never quite know when you could use a micro SD card or SSD. And better safe than sorry. Now is the time to stocking up when they are on sale is never a bad idea. Elsewhere, SanDisk 2 terabyte Extreme Portable SSD is currently 65% off at $160. That's a hefty discount from the regular price of $460. This SSD supports read speeds up to 1,050 megabytes per second and write speeds up to 1,000 megabytes per second. It has USB 3.2 Gen 2 support for data transfers via USB-C. SanDisk says the SSD has up to 2 meter drop protection and IP55 water and dust resistance. There's built-in password protection with 256-bit AES hardware encryption to protect your data and a carabiner loop to help you physically secure the device. This is now the time to take advantage of this historic memory crash. The prices have dropped dramatically. It's time to review your systems to see what upgrades you can make in memory and storage. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend just a few minutes talking more about the workplace. I'm talking about professional IT, all of the different things that go on in the office or sometimes via remote, so forth and so on. Gina reached out to me. You can do it too. Reach out to me here after the show and I will address your concerns, your questions, whatever they may be. Gina's question 
What are the biggest mistakes that IT departments make? And I, there are so many different things, and we could go down all kinds of different rabbit holes. I'm going to bring these down to the three top items that I see. And the three top items are, are, are really big. You miss these, and everything is going to go bad with your tech. I'm going to... And at the office, you don't want this. Let me, let me underscore this. The office relies on technology far more than it ever has before. We are, we're going in different directions, so many different initiatives that are keeping companies going that if you mess up somewhere along the way, you could crash the company. So let's talk about these and I'm, I'm going to address these from the, the least to the worst in these mistakes. First off, not keeping systems and software updated. So it, we see this all the time. You don't, you're not working with the latest version of a software. You're not working with up-to-date computers. You are winding up with situations where I'm, there are companies out there right now. There are companies that are running Windows 7. There are companies out there. I, I, I know someone who's trying to run a business on Windows XP because they don't want to upgrade. Now, let me tell you. You've got to do it. You've got to make these upgrades, whether it's software or hardware, whether it's the network, whether it's your network servers, whatever it is, you need to keep up to date with your business peers, your company one. You need to keep up with company two, company three, company four, everybody who is competing against you. If you're not doing that, if you're not keeping things up to date, and fresh, you're going to lose. The next one, inadequate IT infrastructure. This is somewhat similar, but this goes into a different direction where you're not keeping up to date at all with anything. You don't have enough technology. You don't have enough reliable technology that's in place. You are experiencing a variety of productivity hits. You have situations where maybe employees aren't able to communicate. I will tell you that we have shifted dramatically since the start of COVID towards communicating via tech. People are far more inclined towards going to instant messaging, to going to Zoom calls and, 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 the, and the like, to sending emails at their convenience rather than lifting the phone. And that, if you don't think about that, if you're not planning for that, if you're not adapting, again, that's that's keeping up with the peers. The last one is the one that can hurt the most because it doesn't hurt over the course of a year or two. This is not something that's invisible along the way when it hits it can destroy a company in a matter of days, if not a week. And that is a lack of cybersecurity measures, malware, ransomware. Whatever it is that's coming along that's going to hit your company is going to hit you like a bomb. 
And when I say like a bomb, the numbers that that are out there for people, for companies where their hardware and their system, their networks go down, they're scary. A matter of if you are out of, I, I, I don't know what the current number is. It used to be a matter of if you're out of business for a week, you have a 50% chance of surviving the rest of the year. That's how bad it that's how bad it was. And I think it's gotten a little bit better, but not amazing. Ransomware hits you. You've got to make a decision right away. You cannot be without all of the data that's across your network. Failing to properly secure all of the data within your company can result in a loss of your sensitive information. It can result in data breaches and so forth. And I, I talk about this all the time. This is something that I, I wish I could find a, a way to explain to people the importance of making sure you've got a backup, making sure that you have alternatives, making sure that you are protected. Our home systems, we can write that off. Our our iPhone and tablets and all of this, something bad goes wrong, we can write that off. But if a, if one of these ransomware packages hits the network at the office, it can take down the network, all of the systems that are connected. It can take down all kinds of different things. And along the way, it'll take down the company. And there's very little you can do after the fact except to go to your backups, to go to different resources that are around. There's no magic fix for this ransomware. Yeah, you could pay them off, but do you really want to trust the guys that are holding you ransom? The big answer these days has been no, don't trust them. There you go. Three biggest mistakes. Not keeping up with the software and systems up to date, inadequate IT infrastructure, and a lack of cybersecurity measures. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. What is fixed wireless access? That's FWA technology. A digital desert is an area where there is little or no access to high-speed internet. This can be due to several factors, such as a lack of infrastructure, such as cables or fiber optic lines. The prohibitive cost of bringing infrastructure to these areas, and the difficulty of connecting remote or hard-to-reach locations. Digital deserts often limit residents from taking advantage of the many benefits that come from having a high-speed internet connection, such as access to online education and job resources, the ability to telecommute or work from home, and improve access to healthcare and other services. FWA, which is Fixed Wireless Access, technology has the potential to address these issues. There are various ways in which FWA can combat digital deserts, such as by potentially providing high-speed internet to areas that currently lack wired infrastructure. With FWA, cell towers and base stations provide the necessary infrastructure, but you may need to install an antenna on your home to receive the signal. By being more affordable than fiber optic for people in rural areas, where the cost of running the fiber is high at the outset. However, as noted, fiber optic becomes less expensive the more houses in an area subscribe to it, 
while the inverse may be true for FWA. By offering low-latency internet to rural subscribers via multiple input and multiple out MIMO antenna technology, which allows a targeted signal to the consumer's receiver. FWA offers an opportunity to provide high-speed internet to areas traditionally underserved by broadband technology. Fixed wireless access, or FWA, is a type of 5G or 4G LTE wireless technology that enables fixed broadband access using radio frequencies instead of cables. FWA can be used to connect homes and businesses to the Internet. FWA technology is constantly evolving and expanding around the country. It may be a viable option for even the most demanding Internet usage. You can find out how FWA works and how it's different from wired broadband as well as its upsides and downsides. How does FWA technology work? Fixed wireless access, or FWA, is a type of technology that uses radio waves to send high-speed signals that offer data transfer to and from consumer devices. FWA systems typically consist of a base station connected to a fixed network and a number of subscriber units spread out over a wide area. The base station then uses radio waves to communicate with the subscriber units making it possible for consumers to connect to the fixed network and access high-speed data services. These transmitters are strategically attached to stationary structures such as poles, buildings, or towers. How does fixed wireless access differ from wired broadband? Fixed wireless access, which can support 5G technology, is the next generation of wireless connectivity, offering the potential for ultra-high speeds low latency, and massive capacity. In theory, this could allow users to enjoy speeds comparable to a wide broadband connection. FWA differs from wide broadband in one major way. Wired, fixed-line broadband works through fiber optic cables, telephone lines, coaxial cables, and power lines. No matter which form of broadband you're working with, it requires transmission of data through cables. In the case of DSL, for instance, you attach your modem to the phone line in your war and receive packets of internet data through copper wires. The speed of your DSL connection will depend on how close the phone company's nearest facility is, as well as the integrity of their phone lines. With fiber optic internet, your internet service provider runs the cable all the way to your house or to a location nearby, in which case you tap in via phone line running to a switching box or cabinet. With FWA, your device is receiving a radio signal from the internet provider's transmission tower. This doesn't require any cables or wires to go to your home. FWA may be able to bring high-speed internet to areas where cables cannot reach, which is why it's likely to play a role in the future of wireless internet connectivity, especially in digital deserts. Benefits and Limitations of Fixed Wireless Access In a time when the Internet is becoming increasingly essential, FWA offers a way to bring high-speed connectivity to those who need it most, can provide high-speed Internet to access without infrastructure. FWA does not require a physical wire connection outside the home, 
making it an option for those who reside in areas with mobile coverage. Flexible installation. Unlike other technologies, FWA can be installed quickly and easily without needing trenches or other disruptive construction. For example, the first 5G customer in Houston and in the nation simply had a small pillow-shaped antenna installed on their home from which a wire runs down to their router. The antenna itself receives a wireless signal from one of Verizon's many fixed wireless nodes located on power and light poles in Houston. Transmission distance is limited. Because FWA connections rely on line of sight, they are limited to areas close to the cellular tower. Environmental factors can impact performance. Some FWA connections may be impacted by things like trees, buildings, and path loss, which depends on the terrain. Relatively new technology that is continually evolving, as with any new technology, some kinks still need to be worked out, such as occasional outages, drop connections, and so on. Despite these limitations, network performance keep improving, make FWA increasingly competitive and good enough for various use cases, including extensive video streaming. Network cost keeps dropping, making it affordable to households for services such as TV video streaming. FWA doesn't work in competition with pre-existing technologies such as wide broadband, mobile wireless, and satellite. Rather, it complements them. Accordingly, look for FWA to become a powerful addition to the expansion of internet infrastructure in the future. FWA technology is constantly evolving and expanding around the country. It may be a viable option for even the most demanding internet usage. You can find out how FWA works and how it's different from wide broadband, as well as its upsides and downsides. For a full year, 2022, AT&T added nearly 2.9 million postpaid and 404,000 prepaid phone net ads. AT&T will launch the next rendition of a fixed wireless access product in the market later this year. AT&T will offer FWA in areas where it doesn't currently have fiber deployed, such as less densely populated markets. ATT noted that there's a lot of businesses in those densely populated areas where this is a perfectly acceptable product. ATT said that the new FWA product will use the company's mid-band spectrum. ATT already offers FWA services, both a point-to-point service and a point-to-multi-point service. AT&T Executive Vice President of Technology Operations said that the company has more than 500,000, that's a half a million, FWA subscribers. At that time, he said that the majority of AT&T's FWA customers were outside of its local exchange carrier footprint. AT&T has been less bullish on FWA than competitors, Verizon and T-Mobile, which both out FWA as a viable alternative to fiber broadband and offer their FWA service in many markets nationwide. Fixed wireless has a place in the portfolio, but Verizon added that they don't believe it is a good long-term alternative in dense metropolitan markets or populated suburban areas. In its fourth quarter results, AT&T said that it added 656,000 postpaid net phone ads for the quarter 
and a decline from the 708,000 postpaid net phones ads that are reported in the third quarter. Nevertheless, AT&T was upstaged by T-Mobile, which earlier this month reported that it added 927,000 postpaid phone nets ads for the quarter. Verizon, meanwhile, is in third place with 217,000 postpaid net phone ads for the fourth quarter. So if you're having difficulty getting high-speed internet and you happen to be in an area where it's underserved, check with those three vendors on what's available from them for fixed wireless access service. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you... You didn't even I have a wealth of stuff that came out of the CES treasure troves. This is funny too because you didn't even go to CES, but I you, covered you, it remotely. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, you were uh, following along with a lot of different things there. What? Um, what's one of the things? That- Shervan, Shervan, the guys who have ego and skill. Yeah. They, well. Look, this comes back to tools. Little drivers won't make your nuts or hex heads tight. They don't have enough torque. Right, yeah. You can, yeah, you, yeah. You can, you can snug them, but that's about it. The traditional answer is a socket set and a ratchet wrench. Mm-hmm, yeah. Now we've, now, we've also seen some power wrenches shaped like power drills and drivers, and you're good for some torque yeah, there. Yeah. No, you know, those are fine, but skill just thrilled me with a 12-volt rechargeable brushless ratchet wrench wrench okay say that twice yeah (laughs) (laughs) with with 55 foot pounds of powered torque or lock the head and you can get 150 foot pounds of manual torque wow okay so i could i could hold a tesla and turn elon musk upside down (laughs) with this it's big it's heavy but it speeds through tough work in ways that make a huge difference we also got in so so I mean you were you were recently telling me about uh, some of the work you were doing with a rack a, a, yeah, a yeah, server I, rack and I would, imagine yeah, I, that came in handy very very much we also got in a 240 pound ship and a wooden skid with a big carton on it and in that carton the ego snow thrower that I've described earlier tall enough yeah, to eat yeah, a yeah. blizzard belt snowfall as a snack wide enough to do the whole driveway width in four passes and it <laughs> is self-propelled it arrived okay. as right. three pieces connected by control cables five hardware sets attached everything in a jiffy but even with the dual charger and the two flower bag sized batteries even taking those out of the carton how was i supposed to get 150 plus pounds of steel out of that box well sure von i got lucky also sent their flex 24-volt brushless reciprocating saw kit. Okay. All right. So, so you're able to cut the, cut the whole... Yeah, I, was, I yeah, wanted yeah. the trees, but I went down the corners of the box. <laughs> and just, I could roll the, the, the snow thrower out of that. I, I yeah, felt very yeah. accomplished. I outsmarted the box. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Uh, speaking of snow, Vito yeah. Man. This is V-T-O-M-A-N. Vito Man, no E. Uh, sent their Jump 1000. We're talking a big box, just under 50 pounds, with a handle on the top, a light on the back, an outlet on the front for 120 volts AC, another one for 12 volts DC, and several USB power connections for charging. 
Most of the weight of the thing mm-hmm. is from a bank of advanced tech lithium batteries inside. So you can power this thing up from AC power, from a car's accessory socket, from a solar array, which is not included, or from mm-hmm. almost any other 10 to 30 volt DC source. Okay. Charge it up and you're never powerless, even when the snows bring blackouts or you're camping. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. Far from the you power yeah. alternative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The AC power is pure sine wave, so it won't introduce noise or harm to sensitive gear. Some of the USB ports are PD, power delivery. Okay. So your handset or table or, 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 or the laptops. Yeah. Yeah, whatever sure. they can charge, it, it's just faster. There's even a jump connection, it's an accessory. Mm-hmm. That lets this big box help start a car with a battery that won't. Nice. Okay. So it's one big heavy duty juice box. It's, it's so so a lot of uh, I mean this is this is good for anybody who's trying to prepare for the, the many different. So, so you had a cyclone blast. It was. Oh yeah, we we had like a, a yeah. bomb blizzard. And we'll, bomb we'll go blizzard. into that okay. in a. I've got a story or two that'll come out of that one, my friend. Oh man. <laughs> Now, speaking of cars, especially yeah. those that can start and run, mm-hmm. Motorola mm-hmm. sent a way to let Android Auto connect without wires, even when wireless Android Auto isn't part of what the car normally supports. Okay. The Motorola MA1 wireless Android Auto adapter plugs into the car's USB port, pairs with an Android 11 or higher handset, gives your car those great Android Auto features, and you don't have to plug a wire between the car and your handset. Mm, okay. It, it just happens automatically. There's a little light on the front, tells you the status of everything. It can play Android music through it. It's uh, uh, it's in my car, and it's not going away. Stay away. Stay away. That one's mine. <laughs> We've got another Motorola, but we'll save it for next time. All right. Oh. We've got about a minute left, so right, let's dive into Motorola. that other Motorola item. What What is it? We've got another Motorola, the new Moto Bud 600. Okay. It's tiny. It's great sound, great battery life earbuds. These are earbuds. Okay, yeah. yeah. Good noise reduction, a comfy fit, or at least so I'm told by Judy, my wife, who laid claim to them. I'll never see them again <laughs> myself. And speaking of power, we got in some sweet little power delivery. That's PD fast chargers from Vision Tech, each with two USB. Each with two USB-C ports, a smaller one good for 35 watts, Mm -hmm, mm a little larger good for 65 watts. All of that from one port or the other or both shared. To cap it off, they also sent one USB-C to lightning cable and one with USB-C at both ends. So both are good for power delivery and both with all the wires to let both charging and linking happen. Nice, nice. You know, and this is, uh, I, I sense a theme, both uh, both snow and, and just you know, battery backups of some oh, sort. Oh, yeah. That, that's, uh, well, charging is, is a big part of the tech these days. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston, who's apparently very excited about uh, some of the new releases these days. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. TechEd Connect, formerly Westchester PC Users Group, meets Thursday, February the 2nd. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. 
The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, February the 3rd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Meeting site is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a presentation, Customizing Windows 10. Thursday, February the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, February the 10th at 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is limac.org. The Kingsbite Computer Club meets Tuesday, February the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And for more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of the gang, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, Marty Winston, and Rebecca Mercury, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.